But we have gathered this morning to worship the King. And as we uh, finish the book of Nahum, we're going to be reminded uh, this morning of the God who brings justice, the God who despises evil uh, and brings it into the light. And so uh, I would encourage you as you open up your Bibles to Nahum 3 to be thinking of everything we've talked about really over the whole summer as we've gone through the minor prophets is somewhat culminating here in Nahum 3 as we read the end of uh, this book, the proclamation, the final proclamation to the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire as a whole. Uh, and as you do that, I, I do bring you greetings from everybody camping. Uh, it was a wonderful time. Those of you that were worried about rain, I got sunburnt, uh, so it tells you the, the status of the weather, but it was a, a wonderful time uh, up north. Uh, and so there, there, I drank a Red Bull this morning, so I'm going to talk a lot and maybe too fast uh, because we didn't get home till pretty late last night, um, me and Britt, um, but we are glad to be here to worship with you as we finish Nahum 3. And so let's read uh, the word of God, Nahum chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. All for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart to sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the, Lib the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the heads of every street. Her honored men, lots, were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouths of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens, but the locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like the cloud of locusts setting on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your peoples are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. 
your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, even as we read a text like this in Nahum 3, where we're confronted uh, with just the brutality of a sinful world, Lord, the judgment that uh, is coming on a nation who has uh, provoked many people to great evil and has been agents of oppression and brutality amongst the entire world at that time, Lord, we thank you that we see your justice. We thank you that we see here, even in Nahum 3, that you always have victory over evil. That there is no evil great enough in this world that will ever surprise you or overcome you, but you always bring evil to its knees. You will subdue it. And so, Lord, we cast our hope on you this morning, knowing that you will subdue the evil in this world, Lord, and that you will subdue even the evil that lurks in our own hearts and minds at times. Lord, we ask that through your power and through your Son, that we as your people would live holy and blameless lives that we would heed the warning to the people of Nineveh and let not our own lives or even our own nation come to ruin because of our love and thirst for evil and wickedness. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus who brings us from darkness to life. Lord, the one who paid the price that we are not in bondage to sin but free. Lord, it's in the name of Jesus we pray and ask that you would guide our hearts and minds this morning. Amen. What do we see? How, would, how could we even sum up perhaps all of the minor prophets? I think three words. God hates evil. Right? This is maybe an overstatement or an understatement, however you want to look at it, an oversimplification. But as Nahum is closing his book, he is now looking with a direct look at the evil that Nineveh has promoted. Page after page in, well, two pages really in the book of Nahum. It's not very long. Right? But Nahum has told us that the people are bringing judgment on themselves, and now we are going to see why this judgment really has come. The evil that Nineveh has promoted and has reveled in has brought several things. It has brought shame upon themselves, and it has also brought themselves to a state of helplessness. So if you're a note taker this morning, there's three main points that this chapter is centered around uh, as we finish the book of Nahum. Overarching, God judges sin. Sin will always come under the judgment of God. There is no escaping that. Two, sin brings shame. Sin brings shame. And in number three, sin brings helplessness. Sin brings helplessness. What do we mean as we say God judges sin? Well, Nahum begins this last chapter with a simple word, woe. Right? So some of you, if you're like me when I was younger, woe was a really good word. Right? Like, whoa, man. You know, something we said when we hit a big jump on our bikes. All right? So when we read this word, woe, when it says, chapter 3, verse 1, woe to the bloody city, we might miss what this expression actually is. Woe is an expression meant to display the threat or, of judgment. It's often a threatening cry that the prophets use in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament as Jesus has all of the woes towards the city of Jerusalem uh, that something is coming. Judgment is coming upon you people, right? If you're a kid and you do something bad, you're mischievous, right? None of you were ever mischievous. 
uh, and when your mom threatened something, you blew her off, right? And what would happen in that case? Wait till dad gets home, right? Woe to you, Randy. Dad is on his way home, right? This is what the, the threat, this, this idea of woe is meant to do. It's meant to incite fear, right? So when you're a kid and you hear the garage door go up, you're like, oh man, oh man, what am I going to do? Uh, the time of judgment has come, right? I've eluded this all day. Dad is going to walk through the door. Things are not going to be good for me. I'm going to rehearse my lines and try to build excuses as mom gives him the rundown of everything disrespectful I've done to her all day. Uh, but we start to panic. That's what's meant to be seen here as Nahum says, woe to you, the bloody city. There is a sense of judgment, panic. The one who judges is coming. You're in trouble, O Nineveh. Judgment is on you. The bloody city, he goes on to describe this city, full of lies and plunder, no end to their prey. What have we seen as we've gone through and talked about the nation of Assyria over the last few months as we've been going through these minor prophets? It's a violent, deceitful, uh, has an appetite for destroying nations, a city and a nation whose thirst for evil seem to have no end a city who enticed others around them to participate in its own wickedness. This entire book, we've been told that Nineveh is under judgment and will surely be destroyed. Now we see exactly why. They're violent. They promote lies. They are destined for destruction. And so what do we see as Nahum finishes, as we even finish kind of our summer in the minor prophets here? There's a warning. One, for Nineveh, woe to you, judgment is coming on you. But there's also, we should see here in Nahum 3, a warning for the other nations who are watching God's judgment fall on them, right? If you're a sibling and you see mom say, Randy, wait till your dad gets home. What does that say to my brother and sister? You don't want to be like this guy, shape up. Right? This is what we should see in Nahum chapter 3. Yes, judgment on Nineveh, but a warning for other nations, for Judah, for even us today, to pay attention lest we become Nineveh. God will not permit evil to continue and will bring those who promote it under judgment. The bloody city has acted deceitfully and violently in order to plunder the nations. There's been a rationalization, and I would say, probably even worse, a celebration of evil that they've committed because it has brought them much success. And so to the Assyrians, the ends have always justified the means. They have flourished because of their evil, because of their oppression, because of their violence. Sin has continued so much in their nation and in their rulers that they've become numb to, as we read scripture, we understand the moral law of God that is written on everybody's heart. The people no longer even see what they're doing as wrong. They begin to celebrate it as they record their wickedness, as they talk about their violence. They boast in their misdeeds and don't even see them as misdeeds. They have long thought, if we are this successful, if we have victory in battle, if we plunder nation after nation, then, then surely the gods must approve of us. What do we have with Nineveh? What do we have with the Assyrians here in Nahum? A city 
a people who have lured, lured other nations into and promoted sin as a legitimate course of action. A total wicked and depraved people. And so we're reminded as we close right off the bat that even if evil is done for good purposes, it's still evil. Right? We need to hear this today. Right? We should never kid ourselves into believing that doing something that's contrary to God's revealed word is somehow good if it's bringing about a good end or course of action. God has called his people to live holy and righteous lives. There is no room for evil. We have to fight the primal instinct that says we somehow deserve this or we need to accomplish this, so any means to get to this good result is justified. I need, I need to, to get this or I need to protect myself, so I'm, in ju- I'm justified in doing exactly what God has explicitly revealed in his word not to do. A silly example of this would be when you drive. And I know all of you guys are very righteous drivers. Uh, but for those of us like, like me who struggle in our righteousness on the roads of, of Phoenix, uh, our response when somebody cuts us off is usually very simple. Immediately we tailgate them. Right? You're going to cut me off. I'm going to get as close to you as possible so you feel the heat of my big oversized truck right behind you. Right? I am going to make you uncomfortable. I'm going to tailgate them. I'm going to roll down the window and give them one of these when I drive by. Like, you know, what are you thinking? Well, hopefully that's all you do when you drive by. Uh, right? You want to make them feel like total fools. They have driven recklessly, caused you to be in a moment of danger. And so what do you do? In order to show them, you begin to drive recklessly. The ends justify the means. I'm going to show them just how dangerous what they did is. And so I'm going to now drive like a crazy person. Right? That's just one small example. We could do the same things when we talk about our relationships with our coworkers or our boss or even our spouses. Somebody that does something or says something to us that hurts us, and so we look for the next opportunity to return the favor. Right? We want them to see just how hurtful their actions are. And so we justify being hurtful to them in order to make them see what they did is actually hurtful. Thus begins a wicked cycle. Or maybe it's not something like using evil to counter evil, but a misdeed in protecting or providing for yourself. Say you're up for a promotion at work and you have the ability to improve your odds of getting a raise or getting that better seat at a job, a promotion to being a manager or whatever it is in your line of work. And you know that you can greatly improve your odds of getting paid more money, which might be even needed. You might say, my family is struggling. Like, we could really use this extra money. And so if I do some of this shady business on the side, I'm going to promote or encourage my chances of getting this raise or getting this promotion. And so we engage in some type of uh, sinful activity. We lie, we cheat, we misrepresent ourselves so that we might gain what we desire. We justify it by saying, God could really do something good if I had this extra money. And so I'm going to do evil or something wrong to provide for my family. We begin to rationalize, but we have to look at this and say flat out, that is wrong. Any type of immorality is always immoral. The ends never justify the means. 
It doesn't matter how good of a result you are going to arrive at. If you have used evil to get there, you have disobeyed God, and God judges evil. He's going to judge this great and wicked city, and the scene is horrific in verse 3. We don't need to read it again. It's brutal, but what do we see? Death is everywhere. Why? Because sin brings shame. Why all this death? Nahum says as they look at the carnage that's there, what was this for? He tells us in verse 4, very simply, for all of the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms. Why? Because Nineveh, who is what the prostitute represents, this great city that, that promised satisfaction and joy, has promised relief or purpose, prosperity even, to all of these nations if they would just come to her. They've fallen under the charm of Nineveh because of the things that they've promoted, because of the things that they've encouraged, they are now under judgment. Death is everywhere. The image here is someone literally be putting under a spell, right? So when we read in verse 4, graceful and full of deadly charms, literally in the Hebrew, this is something like a, a, uh, a woman who you desire, a desirous woman full of sorcery or witchcraft, right? Literally somebody putting you under a spell, right? This was very common in the Assyrian Empire in the ancient Near East. People would come and engage in all sorts of evil, uh, in all sorts of witchcraft things, looking for incantations, right? Imagine a whole nation that looks like Sedona, right? Not the beautiful red rocks, like the weird creepy corner things and the, you know, people sitting around twisted trees, uh, right? This is the kinds of things that they have looked for. This is Nineveh. You've come to it because it promised satisfaction, but what has come of you? You have literally been put under its spell. You are trapped. You are entranced. There is witchcraft involved. You are under a spell. You're really not even operating out of your own uh, abilities at this point. Worse, these people have allowed evil to run so much through their culture unchecked that they're going to experience great shame. They're not just given into the lust of their hearts, of the promise of prosperity, of pursuing the things that Nineveh had promised being put under that spell. This city is going to be experience great shame. God's going to lift up their skirts to expose their nakedness. The things that they wished were hidden are going to be exposed. Right? We all have these things in our lives, do we not? The things that we wish nobody would ever find out about us. That if it's revealed, the shame, the misdeeds, the insecurities that we desperately want to keep quiet or private because we're afraid of the shame that's going to come if people know about them. Thus is the power of sin. It brings shame. And God is saying through his prophet, I am going to reveal your shame to the nations. The things that you wished were hidden are going to be exposed. You have lured people in and promoted sin as a legitimate course of action, but now you are going to pay the price. Everybody is going to see you for what you really are. Part of the punishment for Nineveh is that they're going to be put for, to shame. Not only exposed, but he goes on to say, covered in filth and made a spectacle. 
everybody is going to look at Nineveh and, and just laugh. Right? The city, this great, wonderful, powerful city, beautiful city probably even at this point in time, there's going to be no one to comfort them in this day of exposure. They will be utterly embarrassed. All will flee for the judgment is severe. And as we said, this is a warning for the nations that if they allow evil to go unchecked, if they allow evil to be promoted through their lands, if the people engage in these things for their own social uh, improvement or, or a political uh, expediency, it's going to lead a nation to ruin. The ends never justify the means. They will be exposed as what they are in time, lovers of themselves rather than worshipers of God. We should see this in our lives today as a warning too. One of the biggest lies that we see and we lie to ourselves in doing is that engaging in acceptable sins is okay. And what do we mean? These are things to boost one's standing in society, right? And I, one very practical example of this is to say, like, I need to fit into culture, right? The last 10 years, I think it's been off the air for maybe three years or four years, the most popular show in the United States, it seems like, was Game of Thrones, right? Game of Thrones was a hugely successful, popular show. Right? But what is Game of Thrones? Don't watch it. It's not good for you. All right? It's got all sorts of violence, all sorts of misconduct uh, sexually in it that is promoted. But everywhere you went, people wanted to talk about Game of Thrones, how wonderful the show was, or how engaging or riveting the plot line was. And all of that might have been true. But the show was still filth. But Christians wanted to justify this. And this was made very clear to me, probably about 2017, a man named Kevin DeYoung. Some of you may know him or don't know of him. Uh, he's a, a pastor in the East Coast, uh, was at this point in North Carolina. He wrote a very short article saying, Christians should not watch Game of Thrones, right? Because of all of this, this filth that's in the show. The amount of pushback he got from Christians was absolutely incredible. People saying like, well... Just because I'm watching people having sex doesn't mean it's pornography, right? This is, this is not, I'm just, it's part of the plot line, so it's, it's different, right? These are real, like, well-believing Christians, pastors even, who are defending, watching this show, watching and engaging in these things because it's an acceptable sin. It's socially helpful, right? So if somebody says, hey, let's all have, come over, your coworkers, and we're going to watch the newest episode of Game of Thrones, I want to be able to engage them. How am I going to share the gospel of Jesus with them if I don't go and, and watch the show with them? They might not ever invite me over to their house again. And so you rationalize and you say, it's actually a good thing that I'm going over because I might have a chance to engage them about Jesus, and so I'm going to engage in this bad thing for the hope of a better thing in the future. We do this time and time again with so many different areas of our life where we allow something silly, something that we know is not helpful, that's not edifying for us to be in our lives because it's going to allow us to engage in some greater good we rationalize. And so we allow evil to slowly seep in, acceptable sins, things that seem like, well, everybody's doing it, it should be okay. We believe that the ends justify the means, but we should See the warning here in Nahum 3, and let this even be a litmus test to see if we're putting ourselves and our own pleasure and comfort at the center, or if we are putting God there. 
And I believe that there's a very specific reason that Nahum makes note and characterizes Nineveh in this very sexual way. Because there's perhaps nothing that enslaves us more in our lives today, and even in our nation, we would see this, nothing that we rationalize more but know deep down is evil than sexual misconduct. Right? When we engage in all kinds of things, it totally takes captive of us. And so Nineveh, right, the object of this sexual temptation, this woman who is charming, who brings people in, who's delightful to see, who promises to satisfy, is graceful, but she's full of sorcery. A woman who cons nations and peoples, which is how the ESV brings it out, but you could read that as families, with entrapment by her spells. And I believe this should be a very stern warning for us as we read this today in our current cultural moment uh, to take a quick second to look at sexual promiscuity that has run rampant in our nation and even in our churches. As all sorts of expressions of this has grown, so has the church's uh, acceptable sins view in this area increased. But there is nothing acceptable about something that God has clearly said no to in Scripture. In our society, there's a plague, and it has a spell over people, right? It, and its name is pornography. We, you don't, we don't talk, we don't say this very directly from the stage, right? Because it's a little bit unsettling, right? But this is something that is ruining families, not just in our nation, but in the churches, and probably even in our church right now. Something that promises fulfillment, it promises to satisfy, but it's destroying families and we see it destroying our nation, right? This expression or look at something that we say, well, it's harmless. It's only me. It's only something I do privately. It's not actually affecting somebody. I'm not sinning against somebody else, so it must be okay. We rationalize, we rationalize, but what do we really see? We are under the spell. We are enslaved, and it has become our master. This is happening in family after family in the United States. 98% of kids, by the time they are 18, will be actively looking at this currently. Right? It is an absolute plague. The average age that somebody sees something like this is nine years old. It's absolutely horrific, but nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to bring it out of the shadows because of the shame that is attached to it. But church, we should see Nahum 3 and say, this is a sorceress who has put us under her spell. We have to break free of this. We have to bring it and put it under the truth of Jesus and let him shine his light and eradicate it from our church, from our lives, and hopefully from our nations. And I know that this morning that there is some of you in this room who have been put under this spell, who even as we hear this, dabble in these things, who are looking secretly at these things and saying things like it doesn't affect anyone, or it's not that big of a deal, it's just a poster in my garage. I'm here to tell you this morning, it is a big deal. A servant cannot have two masters. If your master is an image or a video, you are not pursuing Jesus. You're pursuing something else. And you are probably under its spell. You've gone to it because it promised satisfaction, but all you have become is a slave. Lusting after someone in a picture or a video 
is what controls you. You are destined for certain ruin if you continue to pursue in this. That's what scripture tells us. But if this is you today, as we get back on track here, if you've struggled to have freedom in this area, two things you should do. One, repent. Go to the Lord and say, Lord, I have looked to a different master. I have sought satisfaction from somewhere other than you. Two, you should go and talk to somebody today, whether it be one of us pastors here or a very close Christian friend that you can confide in, even your spouse, and say, I need you to hold me accountable. I don't want this in my life any longer. Let them point you to Jesus who gives you forgiveness, who covers grace, who brings you from death to life as you struggle with the shame that is attached there, knowing that Jesus brings you not from to death but to life. But you must confront this. It will only bring shame and destruction. Do not let sin creep into your life. You think you are in control, but once you let it in, you quickly realizes, realize that any sin, in particular this sin, will control you. Turn to God in repentance. Find deliverance through the blood of Jesus. Evil cannot stand before God. Let it be exposed to his light and truth and be powerless in controlling you. That's a perfect segue as we get to the last point here this morning. What does sin do? Sin ultimately brings helplessness. The city is helpless because it has made, it, it has made itself God's enemy. And so Nahum asks in verse 8, are you better than Thebes? Right? What some of us are like, what are, what's Thebes? Right? Only one person in our church I know really knows Thebes well, and it's Susu. If you've ever talked to her, she can talk to you about Thebes. She's Egyptian. Right? Thebes is an ancient uh, uh, city that was the seat of power in Egypt. Uh, it's modern-day Luxor, I think. You can go there and actually see all the different uh, buildings that have been erected over the millennia uh, that, that the city had great power. And Nahum asks very specifically, are you stronger than Thebes? Because the armies of Assyria had seen the strength of Thebes firsthand. They had conquered it, 663 BC, I believe. Right? So when Nahum is writing this, he's saying, is your city more fortified than this great city? What is Thebes? What does it look like? Well, 400 miles down the Nile Delta, an invading army from the north would have to march, exposing themselves to both the right and the left, uh, from any assault from kindred nations that were uh, aligned with Thebes, right? This is a seat of power, and so there's all of these other nations who are under the rule of Thebes, but looked at it very f favorably, right? The Egyptian dynasty was very powerful. And so as this army, if they even wanted to conquer Thebes, would have to walk past all of these people who were vassal states and were literally assaulting them as they marched towards this great city, but if they finally arrive to this massive city, 27 miles in circumference, the heated glare of the horizontal wall of water blinded them everywhere they looked. For Thebes was surrounded by rivers, streams, canals, and lakes formed by the Nile as it distributed itself over the broadened delta. Any invader would certainly be overwhelmed at this sight that greeted their eyes. Furthermore, there's a field of massive statues, memorials, temples, and great halls with no equal in the world that stood before them. Thebes was a massive and powerful city. Further, Thebes was also the ancient locality of the sun god Ammon. 
right? So in uh, the Hebrew, the city is literally called Noamon, right? So this is the seat of power for this local god who seemed to be really powerful, the chief god of Egypt. And so not only did the surrounding nations fear this city because of its great fortification and very uh, uh, helpful layout of rivers and protection, its massive uh, walls and statues, there was also this spiritual element there that their god is a really powerful god, right? This this demon that is providing power to these people uh, is something that made people very afraid. And yet the Assyrian army defeated this great city. They sacked it, as I said, in 663 B.C. And so Nahum is saying, if this great city can fall, uh, could, could fall, Nahum's saying to the people in Nineveh, what makes you so arrogant about your current situation? The powerful and mighty Thebes you conquered the one who had more fortifications than you, the one who seemed like it would never be overthrown, it had stood for millennia. You overthrew it, Assyria. It became an exile. It was powerless. The reference to, to uh, infants here is not actually probably infants. I believe it's probably a reference to future rulers, so young princes. right? So if a, a nation comes in and conquers... What happens, everybody that would be next in line to rule, the entire royal family, the monarchs, would be destroyed so that the city literally has no rulers. So he's telling the people of Assyria and the people specifically in Nineveh, look at this. The line of kings was destroyed. The city totally cut off. Are you greater than that? Greater than the cities whose warriors left in chains? If they can fall so can you, Nineveh. And because of your evil, Nineveh, you have been left helpless. And so Nahum finishes his book by describing five ways that Nineveh is totally helpless. Verse 11, he tells us, you will be like a staggering drunk. You will be like a panicked fugitive who turns to the enemy. Verse 12, you will be like a trembling fig tree. Verse 13, like a feeble woman. With the second half of verse 13, like a city with gates thrown wide open. In each of these examples, we see somebody who is helpless before an adversary. They are essentially defenseless and doomed. Such is the effect of sin in our lives apart from the redemptive work of Jesus. And we should pause briefly to look at verse, thing, verse, verse 13 because it makes some people a little bit uncomfortable. Right? What am I talking about when it says, Behold, your troops are women in your midst. If you have the NIV, they get rid of this altogether because they don't really like the way that that sounds. Right? Uh, they say your troops are, are weak or feeble, something along those lines. They remove the gender here. But in our present culture, when there's so much effort spent to erase differences between men and women, we should pause, even if it's not quite in line exactly with what the point of Nahum 3 is, to say, what are they saying? Why do they use this example? In our present culture, men and women are seemed as pretty much interchangeable. But to the ancient people and pretty much everybody until about two minutes ago, we understood men and women are different. 
right? We're different. It's okay. It's actually really good. Uh, we should not shy away from this. Nahum uses this term to say your troops are women in your midst to make a very vivid but clear observation, right? In hand-to-hand combat, are you going to have a Goliath of a man, nine feet tall, you know, like muscles bursting out, everything I wish I could be in life, uh, but I'm not, right? As your warrior, or do you want a woman who has clearly uh, physiological disadvantages in, in the sight of these great and powerful men? Hand-to-hand combat, who's going to win? The really big, strong guy or the little, tiny guy? Almost always the really strong guy unless it's David and God's actually fighting for you and it works out really well, right? For the most part, if you are weaker, you're going to be overpowered. Nahum is, is saying, look, your troops will be so overwhelmed, they will seem powerless before this great army that is coming. They stand no chance. The differences between your army and the one that God is sending is stark. Your, your troops will be like women, powerless in this defense. And we should reject, as we read this, assumptions that deny the reality that God has made men and women different. Nahum understand, understood, the entire world for millennia has understood, men and women are not interchangeable. They are different. God has created them with equal value, dignity, worth. Neither men or women is better in any way overall in the sight of God, but there are some things that men have an advantage in, and there are some things that women have an advantage in. We should not shy away from that or, or uh, be unsettled when Scripture uses phrases like this. So when Nahum is simply saying your troops are women in your midst, he's saying you have no chance you were outmatched by superior strength. It's very clear and simple. Sin makes somebody helpless. It has promised fulfillment. It has promised an answer to one's desires, but it quickly proves not to fulfill and not to be an answer, but to be an enslaver, to be a master. It rules by shame, and it makes somebody helpless. But as we finish Nahum 3, and we wrap up this morning, we should remember that there is one who is not helpless in the face of sin. Jesus, the man who knew no sin, but became sin, that we might have the righteousness of God. Just as God can eradicate evil from the nations, as we see in Nahum 3, he can eradicate evil from our hearts. We can't have two masters. One master brings destruction, oppressive shame, a sense of helplessness. The other brings freedom and joy. Sin can never give you fulfillment in life, but Jesus can. Christ brings healing. Christ brings freedom. Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm. David, looking at the sin in his life, looking at the ways that he's rejected God in the middle of it. You should read the whole psalm if you can this afternoon with your family or with whoever. It's a beautiful psalm. But verses 10 through 12, this is David's prayer to God and should be our prayer this morning. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing, a, a willing spirit. We should cry out to God, have 
Mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us, for we need to be washed by the blood of your Son. Take the sin from us. Restore our souls. Renew our minds. Give us a clean heart and a spirit that desires your ways, God. Nahum has been a warning to the nations. Don't be Nineveh, for woe to the ones who give footholds to evil and set themselves against God. Scripture warns us, evil is crouching at our door, ready to overtake. It will corrupt us, weaken us, control us. But Christ is our master, not sin. So let us not have a spirit of timidity, but of courage as we live for Christ and strive to be like him in all of our ways. Two quick questions as we finish this morning for real personal evaluation. Number one, who is your master? What is it that you live for? What are you looking to for satisfaction right now? Is it something that enslaves or is it Christ who gives you freedom? And number two, do you have unconfessed sin in your life? Right now, as you sit in this room or you listen online, do you have sin that is unconfessed? And if you do, bring it to the light and don't let the shame and helplessness that are sure to follow it be squeezing the life and joy that we have in Christ out of you. Run to Jesus. He's the great healer and he is a good master. We don't need to be in bondage to sin for Christ has come and set us free when we belong to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your good word that brings us encouragement. Lord, your word that uh, reminds us of the severity of sin in our lives, but also the goodness of your grace as you provide a way out and deliverance from that evil. Lord, I pray that those of us in here who are, are dealing with unconfessed sin, who are under bondage to, to some type of habitual sin, Lord, that today you would, in your spirit, give us the courage to confront this and to confess it, that we might find redemption and cleansing and victory through the truth of Scripture and the hope of Jesus. Father, thank you that we can see your warning we pray that our nation, our church, even our families, Lord, would be people marked by those who pursue justice rather than promote evil. Lord, let us be people who never say the ends justify the means. Let us strive always for holy and righteous living that what we do might emulate Christ and his sinlessness to the world that watches. Lord, we know this is a high calling and difficult so we ask that you would give us the ability to confront sin, to confess sin, Lord, so that we might be your people walking in your righteousness in this world. Lord, we desire that, we strive for that, and we thank you that through Jesus we are able to progressively conquer and take one step closer to being Christ-like and experiencing the full joy of being in you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. It's him we pray. Amen.